Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux of the Story. I'm Mike Fernandez, and Gary Sheffer and I are looking forward to our discussion with our guest today, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for the NAACP, Abba Blankson. As someone who comes from a multiracial, multicultural family and has been an NAACP member, I am very much looking forward to the conversation. Gary, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks. What are you most looking forward to in our interview today with ABBA? Well, I think I, with so much going on that affects that organization, I'm always interested in how CCOs prioritize what things to take on for their teams and for their organization. So that's, that would be of interest. Just so much that they are involved in, it would just seem to be a, quite a challenge. Yeah, I mean, they're sort of at that nexus point, right, in terms of lots of key important issues that, yeah. that, that many of us are concerned about and many politicians are, 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 are voicing concerns about. So look forward to it. But before we get to Abba, let's take a look at some of the items in the news this week. Twitter's CEO, Jack Dorsey, made a, an announcement on Monday morning. He announced his resignation via a tweet. The message was simple and direct. It simply said, mm -hmm. not sure anyone has heard about, I resign from Twitter, to which he attached a letter that he was sending to Twitter team members. In that letter, he said that after almost 16 years having a role at our company, note our company, <laughs> I decided it's finally time for me to leave. And then he says, why? And then he goes on, and I'm truncating it a bit here. I've, I've worked hard to ensure the company can break away from its founding and founders. There are three reasons I believe now is the right time. First, he talked about his successor, Parag Agarwal, who is a 10-year veteran of Twitter and most recently has served as the company's chief technology officer, saying, my trust in him as our CEO is bone deep. Second, he talked about Brett Taylor as Twitter's new board chair, saying he understands entrepreneurship, taking risks, companies of massive scale, technology, product, and he's an engineer. And he cited the strength of the board with, with Taylor's leadership. Third, he announced his faith in the team in place, saying, all of you, have the potential to change the course of this company for the better. In closing, he writes, there aren't many founders who choose their company over their own ego. He continued, thank you all for the trust you've placed in me and for the openness to build the trust in Parag and yourselves. I love you all, Jack. P.S. I'm tweeting this email my one wish is for Twitter Inc. to be the most transparent company in the world. Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> 
Gary, you helped to manage one of corporate America's most talked about CEO transitions when Jack Welsh stepped down at GE and Jeff Immelt became the new CEO. How do you rate this changing of the guard by comparison? Well, I, I, I think I would give it an A in that there was no real drama. The Jack-Jeff transition went on for years. There was a very open and public competition for the job, and that created a lot of stress, in my view, inside the company. And this was done the right way, which is you have the right successor in place. You have faith in the people who will, both from a board member, a board perspective and from a leadership perspective. And so I think going out as in the way that he did, I think is really, really well done. Using his own platform, of course, helps, but don't drag these things out. Make sure you've got the right people and say your goodbye. Yeah. I mean, what's so wonderful in my mind is how true to brand this is. Yep. You know, how empathetic and caring it is of the people who are in the company, even though, you know, it sort of violates sort of one of the things that's taught is that, you know, you, you go ahead and you communicate this, you know, first, maybe to employees, right, after you get through all the, the steps with the board and whatnot. But I think it, th this this excuses that because I think it's it, it's form and fit that makes sense and it's compassionate on all on all so many levels and even the shout out to mom. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's aspirational too. I I I noted the call for transparency, which I think is mm -hmm. really important. But I, I would say this to me is the most important part of that letter, Mike. I mean, I, I yeah. really like the letter is, you know, we've all seen, we've talked about on this podcast, the troubles of founder slash CEOs like Adam Newman, Elizabeth yeah. Holmes, Travis Kalanick. And there's this line in, in Jack's letter, which says there's a lot of talk about the importance of a company being founder led. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I believe that's severely limiting and a single point of failure. Yeah. And, and I think that's so smart. The recognition that sometimes founders aren't the best CEOs and that kind of self-realization, self, you know, criticism, if you, if you will, for Jack, I think is really well done. And it, and it points to a change in how we think about some of these tech companies, particularly Mike, where, you know, you had Steve Jobs as founder slash CEO, and it was so successful. I think it's uh, turning a little bit now. Yeah, absolutely. Another item that caught my eye is really a study, a study about digital engagement and digital marketing. Team Lewis, which is a UK integrated, integrated marketing and PR firm, released its annual study of global marketing engagement. In it, they assess trends. They also select what they think are the top companies in various regions of the world, and as well as selecting a top 10 globally. And the list that they were using or that they were studying from was the Forbes 300 list. Mm -hmm. 
in seven of its top 10 global companies. Those that are the best at online or digital customer engagement are U.S. companies. And, and many of us might not be surprised with that or with some of the names that were towards the top of that list, like IBM, Dell Computer, American Express. But I also saw a few surprises, quite frankly, in my mind. I mean, ADP, CVS Health, Duke Energy and hmm. Lilly, but the study's trends are, are, are what captured me the most. I mean, Team Lewis reports that COVID-19 is, is, is or has accelerated digital transformations as brands responded to heightened customer expectations, even in the midst of pandemic. And many firms became almost solely digital because they had to. And then there were other interesting observations, 40% of these companies do not list their corporate values anywhere <laughs> on their website. And roughly 20% do not reference current cultural issues, which is kind of interesting given some of the conversations we've had about companies that are becoming more engaged in cultural and social issues. And then 45% of the sites still do not use video assets on their sites. Thought it interesting that only 40% of CEOs have a social media presence, and of those, only 17 actively post company-related info. 94% of companies do not use personalization tools on their websites. Only a few consumer-facing firms are doing this. B2B brands were said to be lagging on community engagement that may not surprise uh, some of us as much, uh, as they were found less likely to interact with customers over their social channels. And only 15% of corporate websites were said to be ADA compliant in terms of accessibility. Mm -hmm. Gary, I know you and your teams have done a lot of work to enhance GE's presence while you were the chief communications officer there. What do you make of these trends? Is it what you expected or not? No, it's not, Mike. I, I'm, I'm surprised by, given the emphasis that people in this business have put on digitization, storytelling, narrative values, uh, the values one really shocks me a little bit that 40% don't list their corporate values. And I, I just wonder why that is. Is it because they don't have them? Or, or, you know, they don't think they're important enough to tell the world what they are. I do say that, so I'm surprised by a lot of this, but yeah. I would say, Mike, there was a study, and I forget by who this week, who did it, that uh, CCOs feel like their teams don't have the skills needed to do some of this work, still don't. And, and so I, I think this is so important. So, uh, you know, we need to do upskilling obviously for, for corporate teams and, and agencies. I think agencies clearly are ahead on this, on some of these things, but even down to things, Mike, like not only 15% are ADA compliant. I, I, I would think the lawyers would be all, all over that as uh, part of their compliance checklist. So I am surprised by m many of the findings here. And boy, the one that sticks out to me is the, the one related to values, because it's so important and related to the social activism that people are clamoring for from businesses today. You've got to lean on your values in those kinds of situations. It makes you almost wonder if, if, if some of these companies and some of their leaders think 
values or something that you hold close and it's inside the company and they're not sharing it externally. I, I wonder if this is... I, I mean, I hate to say it, but I wonder if this is kind of a macho thing. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we we don't want to we don't want to share our innermost thoughts, you know, with the rest of the world for fear that we'll be thought of as 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 soft or you know not not being you know what we should be. Or, yeah, um, boy, at, at a time when people are clamoring for soft I think people want I, I mean I do think that this is an era where context almost matters more than content yep. and that's such a valuable piece of a company's context in terms of who they are and what they aspire to be so yeah I found that disturbing as well I wasn't as surprised with the fact that CEOs, presence online isn't what some people might expect it to be. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I, I think the nature of that is, you know, the, the CEO's first job is to run a company, not necessarily to get followers on <laughs> uh, on, on, on Twitter or Facebook. I, I think that, you know, I'd still probably ex- expected to see that there were more out there. I was also very surprised given the attention that I and my teams through the years have given to video assets online Mm -hmm. that that was, you know, they're 45% of the Forbes 300 that still do not use video assets on, on their site. That's amazing. That's amazing. So so to me, yeah, that was really. It's an interesting study. I haven't heard of team Lewis, uh, uh, but I've looked at, as I knew we were going to talk about this, their website, it's a intriguing firm. I'll have to uh, learn, learn more about them. Yeah, well, I think they went by a, a longer name before, and, and and this is almost part of their rebranding, if you will. I see. Yeah. So, so talking about interesting brands, Gary, you and I had the honor of interviewing documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney just as his HBO documentary on Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, its founder, had come out called The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. And for those who are uninitiated, Elizabeth Holmes is the founder of this failed blood testing startup, Theranos. And the documentary was all about how she misled investors and others as to the abilities of her, her firm. Theranos soared in valuation. I mean, I think it was like nine, $10 billion yeah. after the company claimed to have revolutionized blood testing and that they could actually develop their testing by simply you know, a pinprick of blood. And now Elizabeth Holmes is standing trial before a U.S. District Court in San Jose, California, on two counts of conspiracy to commit fraud and nine counts of fraud. It's a federal case. So I believe it's, it's actually male fraud is, is the actual contention. If convicted, Holmes, now only 37, could face up to 20 years in prison for each count of fraud. Taking the stand this week, Ms. Holmes, who has always presented herself as confident and poised and 
almost like the founder of Apple was always shown, <laughs> you know, wearing a, a black turtleneck and jeans. This week, she takes the stand. She says her former boyfriend and business partner, Ramesh Balwani, was to blame in that he controlled her, her schedule, and even what she ate. She also laid blame on others, saying others were responsible for the day-to-day -day management of Theranos's lab. Gary, what you know, what you've seen, you followed this closely. Are Elizabeth Holmes' claims credible? Do you think the Silicon Valley startup culture of fake it till you make it survives this trial? Well, we studied in my Boston University crisis class, we studied this case, we read the book Bad Blood mm -hmm. that documented all of this. There certainly was some fraud going on, and I'll stick to the communication side of it. She was, as you say, presented as this confident, cool, genius CEO, yeah. founder and CEO. And, and so if indeed she was being manipulated behind the scenes by Mr. Balwani, that whole persona that they presented at conferences in the Fortune magazine and elsewhere that certainly was a fraud if she wasn't the, the person and the leader that they said she was. And if you go really deep into this case, Mike, it, it is really, there's video, as you say, if you watch the documentary, much of the interaction between uh, Ms. Holmes and her team and Mr. Balwani is on video. Yeah. And none of this seems apparent to uh, this uh, manipulation to control this uh, abuse. And so I'm skeptical and cynical uh, about it. And I don't think her claims are credible. As to the fake it until you make it, I don't think. It, it, you know, entre the entrepreneurial system in this country right now, the startup culture is about raising money. Yeah. And, and the, if you follow WeWork, if you follow other similar companies to Theranos, this is prevalent. This overstating of revenues, of market value, of technology, and it's all because they need to continuous, they need that drug of uh, continued financing. So I don't think it'll go away. I, I do think the outcome of the case, if she is indeed found guilty, might send a little chill up some people's spine, but ultimately they'll get back to this kind of behavior. Uh, you, I mean, to your point, you look at the video and you look at all these interviews that she's done through the years. I mean, she's done interviews with 60 Minutes, right? Yeah, right. And you get this sense, ultimately, in hindsight, that, that we were all, you know, taken in and that we were, you know, that, that the entire effort was an act and that she had to be aware Right. He absolutely had to be aware. And so I look at this and say, is this but just act two? <laughs> right. And, and Mike, it, the, the, the documentary, the book, this was a micromanager. Yeah. Uh, down to the point of who's in the office after 6 p.m. and who is not. Right. It's like they were protecting things. They were protecting, they were protecting the big lie that was sitting in their lap. 
Exactly. So the fact that she knew all of that kind of micro detail and, and not the big picture is, is hard for me to swallow. Well, well, it's also, you know, in today's world where CEOs and CFOs, you know, have to sign all the financial documents and vow that they're totally aware of the position of the company and the financial strength yes. of the company. It's, it, it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, I just find it hard to believe that this is someone who is helpless and hopeless. Yes. You know, just when we thought it was over, <laughs> Gary, <laughs> yeah. you know, this past week, just as we were enjoying our, you know, Thanksgiving turkey and the U.S. holiday and giving thanks that perhaps the end of the pandemic was near, we learn of yet another variant the Omicron or Omicron variant. As we tape this show, it's unclear as to its likelihood to spread, its ability to actually do damage, and the effectiveness of currently available vaccines against it. Yet the U.S. government almost immediately upon hearing the news from South Africa banned entry into the United States for anybody coming from South Africa and seven other African countries, President Joe Biden said, I've decided we're going to be cautious. Now, this underscores yet again, I think, the importance of, for all of us to get vaccinated uh, and those of us who are eligible to get booster shots and the rest of us to be careful. But now, I think we need to understand that the reason we even know about this variant is because the South African government basically self-identified this yeah. as an issue in its own country so that others could be better prepared. Gary, a communications question, if you will. Should we be penalizing South Africa with a travel ban? After all, it was alerting the rest of us. And aren't we running the risk that countries in the future might not self-identify contagious diseases for fear that it will cut them off from commerce and interaction with the rest of the world? Doesn't this disincentivize countries from reporting? I, I, I think that's right, Mike. In other words, other countries certainly are watching what happens with South Africa mm -hmm. and probably making a decision to be less disclosive <laughs> than more. But I, you know, I also empathize with yeah. the president and wanting to protect Americans yep. from, from a variant that's, that so far we don't really know how deadly it is. It seems to be more contagious, spread easier. But I, I, I think these are hard decisions you have to make. And as a leader, I would say, Mike, it reinforces the fact that this is a global problem, meaning yeah. COVID, that has to be solved through a global strategy. Yeah. And the, the folks who have pointed out that the failure to get vaccines to countries like South Africa and, and other parts of the world was a mistake have been proven to be correct, that this needed to be looked at from a, from a global situation. I hope the United States will help South Africa in that respect by getting more vaccines to them. I know the Chinese government has already announced that they're going to be shipping more vaccines to Africa but again, COVID is a global problem. It's a global pandemic, and it does not respect borders. Yeah, the second part of your answer is exactly where I would have gone mm -hmm. in terms of the 
you know, the nature of the beast here is global and it knows no boundary, <laughs> no border. And somehow we've got to get it through our heads that this isn't simply a U.S. problem to solve or a Canadian problem to solve or a German problem to solve. It's, it, it really takes all of our best minds in order to go after it. The other thing that I'd be interested in, I hadn't thought about this and I should have thought about <laughs> this, is, is, is wondering if Donald Trump was still president, what would he be saying about this? Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting point of view. I'm, Sir, I, I'm sure the variant would have maybe a different name. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that someone would be readily offended and with reason. <laughs> well, and also you remember at the beginning of all this, part of the problem in the U.S. was he was slow to close the borders and particularly to China. And, and some folks who were contagious came to this country, even though we had announced closure of the borders to Chinese travelers. So I'm sure Joe Biden was taking note of that to move quickly to be effective in, in keeping the variant out of the US. Yeah, you know, and, and just a, a little aside there, because I do think that there is that tendency of leaders, and it's not always the right instinct, but to solve the problem from the last battle. Yes. And that can that can nip you in the tail. I just remember the situation with United Airlines and you know the Dr. Dow incident. Oh right. Where where he was dragged up the plane. And in part, what did the CEO at the time do and the organization do? But quickly defend the employees, yes. not taking the full breadth of context of that specific incident in mind. So I, I was I, I agree with you, but I also think when when you look at the most recent problem and what didn't get solved, sometimes that's not the best answer. Best answer, yeah. Good yeah. point. Now I didn't purposely get into that last back and forth about former President Trump to be sort of a segue into this last news item. But, you know, one of the nice things about holidays this time of year in the U.S. is that there are plenty of games for oh, yeah. fanatics like us. And, and the day before Thanksgiving, I actually found myself watching an, a very intense overtime basketball game, NBA basketball game between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Indiana Pacers, when all of a sudden LeBron James spoke to a referee. They're in overtime. He's clearly upset. And the referee goes over to kind of the, you know, the side court. And the referee shortly thereafter literally you know, sends, you know, two fans that are sitting out at courtside, and this is at Gamebridge Fieldhouse in Indianapolis, but he comes to learn that they've been heckling LeBron and making obscene gestures and statements, and even saying they wish LeBron's son would be killed. Wow. And in the pro, so, so, so anyway, I think, 
that that seems to be a legitimate <laughs> yes. reason. You know, I, I mean, it's one thing. I mean, you get into a game and yes, you're pulling for your team and maybe you even inveigh for the opposition to miss a shot, you know, much like people, you know, who are wiggling their hands and jumping up and down when somebody's, you know, trying to sh- shoot a free throw. But this sort of goes beyond the pale. Wow. And, and, and so I think, you know, in, in that sense, it seems like the referee did the appropriate thing. Uh, but as that happened, somehow this gets conflated with politics, because in protest of what the referee did, or in protest of LeBron going to the referee, Donald Trump Jr., the former president's son, to t- decides to take a shot at LeBron through uh, a messaging on Instagram. And he takes the picture of a frame that has the referee and LeBron in it. And it says, is there a bigger bitch in pro sports than La Snitch? Gary, what is the former president's son thinking? Something tells me he would not say these kinds of things to directly to LeBron's face or even sitting in a cushy seat at courtside himself. What do you make of all of this? Well, isn't that the, the you know, social media has made, you know, a lot of people brave, Mike, yeah. you know, yeah. the distance yeah. that it provides. He certainly would not. And we know the Trump family is certainly a family of heroes. You know, his dad was uh, Commander Bonespur, right? <laughs> and, and he certainly would not do this. And if someone tells you they want your son dead, it, it is certainly the right thing to point it out to the referee. And it is certainly the right thing for the referee to throw these folks out. And I would also say it should also not escape anyone's attention or notice that the Trumps almost exclusively criticize people of color. Yeah. The father with people in Congress, members of Congress who are, are black, et cetera. And so this is a strategy yeah. in which the, the Trumps play to their base by going after people of color. I, I assume if this were a white player, Donald yeah. Trump Jr. would not be interested at all in, yeah. in this. And, and I think that's the real shame of it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is kind of tribalism at its worst. Yes. You know, what he is purposely trying to do is fan the flames of racism and trying to make a political point here where none is to be made. I mean, the sad impact of all of this is that, you know, when you go on Instagram or you go on Twitter and and, and see the storyline, predictably almost, sadly predictably, you have people lining up on both sides based on political intentions rather than what actually took place. And to me, that's that's one of the challenges all communicators, I think, have to deal with in today's marketplace is, you know, you're either wearing red or you're wearing blue. People don't see much in between. Everything's political. I mean, if you look this week over the last few weeks, Mike, the fact that the vice president of the United States bought a $300 piece of cookware has become political. Yeah. So, you know, it really is a strange 
world that we live in where everything is political. I do get a kick out of the companies sometimes that say we want to try to stay out of politics. Well, good luck with that. That's right. Good luck with that. <laughs> talking about social issues, talking about politics, talking about issues that matter. Let's move on to our discussion with NAACP's Chief Marketing and Communications Officer, Abba Blanks. As Mike said at the top of the podcast, our, our guest this week on The Crux is Abba Blankson, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at the NAACP, one of the most important civil rights organizations in the world. Abba oversees and develops communication strategies, campaigns, and partnerships to elevate the NAACP's brand, its products and services. She helped the launch COVID Unmasked a virtual event series to raise awareness of pandemic impacts, and also the 2020 Davy Award-winning campaigns, hashtag We're Done Dying and Virtual March on Washington to bring attention to longstanding racial disparities. Prior to joining the NAACP, ABBA served as marketing and communications lead at the Common Application, a thought leader in higher education. She grew up in Baltimore and holds a back, get, get this, Mike, get this educational background. Love Makes it. me so jealous. And holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics from Hood College, a master's in computer science from Townsend University, and an MBA from Cornell University's SC Johnson College of Business. She has served as an executive in residence at the University of Texas Austin Moody School of Communications. She is a member of the Page Society with Mike and I. And her commentary has appeared in Forbes, Fast Company, Ad Age, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. Abba, welcome to The Crux. Thank you. I am so excited to be here with you and Mike. This is like, what have you been doing in your spare time over the years? It's like, <laughs> nothing's going on here. What, what, uh, so impressive to see that kind of background and you can see why you're in the role you're in today. So, the NAACP is an organization with a long and storied history going back to 1909. And in fact, I learned a lot about it prepping for this interview. Its mission today is to, quote unquote, ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of rights of all persons and to eliminate race-based discrimination, unquote. How has the organization, the NAACP, changed over the years as public attitudes about race have evolved? So first of all, thank you so much again for, for having me. I am looking forward to this conversation. So the NAACP over the last few years has been really focused on voting rights and sustaining our rights, as we mm -hmm. will talk about in the conversation. The work that the NAACP does actually influences and impacts other groups. So we've seen LGBTQ rights that comes straight out of the civil rights movement. We've seen women's rights that come straight out of the civil rights movements. And so the, the work that the NAACP does is not just impacting one group. When we say we are fighting for the rights of all people, that, that is actually a phrase that we take seriously. Interesting. And certainly over the years, the conversation 
about race has changed. It has shifted. It has morphed. Our strategies on tackling policies and both our proactive mission to ensure that everybody enjoys the same rights, Mm -hmm. quality, and also our reactive mission to challenge discrimination. Both of those things have kind of changed. Our tactics and strategies have changed, but sometimes the underlying problems have actually not changed that much. Exactly. Interesting. And so one of the things I'm interested in knowing from from you is CCOs, you know, chief communications officers like yourself, you have so many things on your plate, right? And and particularly over the last two years plus with George Floyd and, and everything that that spawned, how do you prioritize? You've just described to us a, boy, a lot of things that you could be working on and are working on. And so how do, as a leader in, in the NAACP, how do you prioritize what to work on for your team? It is not an easy thing. <laughs> as on any given day, there are several things that we could be working on. But I mentioned before that there's both a proactive and a reactive. Right. Um, sometimes we focus a lot more on the reactive, on the, the stories of Ahmaud Arbery and, mm-hmm. you know, George Floyd. But there's also a proactive mission in working to ensure that we grow wealth and that we're supporting small Black businesses. And so on every day, I think yeah. both of those things are priorities. And we, we sort of, we, we tackle both at the same time, if you will, be- because they mu- it must be so. I want to build on Gary's question about history. You know, the NAACP has such a proud history. You know, I think about it, it's it's founding, Gary mentioned 1909, but, uh, you know, Ida Wells, Barnett, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, and what you've been, what the organization has been engaged in through the years from the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And I got to think it's going to be pretty awesome and at the same time daunting to think that you're the lead for public relations for NAACP, which is the role that W.E.B. Du Bois had at the very beginning. I mean, what is it like to follow in his footsteps? And to what degree do you find yourself relating to this amazing legacy as a touchstone, even as you tell the story of NAACP today? Wow, that is a powerful and and a greatly humbling, humbling statement. You know, it is daunting to think that this is the legacy, right? That we follow in the footsteps of folks like Ida Burt Wells and Du Bois and so many others. I think part of what they, at their core, they were journalists. They were storytellers, right? And I think part of that legacy is telling the story of the Black experience. Now, Mm -hmm. I would say the story of the Black experience here in these United States, because there's a lot to say. Du Bois, I know, would say telling this, the Black experience globally, right? Yeah. Pan-African. Yeah. yeah. And so there's, there's a part of that that is conveying an honesty and a three-dimensional full picture of the Black experience, the love, the trauma, the struggle, the challenge, the achievement, the excellence, all of that combined, not in caricature and not in we are here for somebody else's amusement, as it was. But, but that we are, we are human and there's a part of that, a, a, a way to show that humanity 
in, in fullness and completeness that I think is part of the legacy of Du Bois and in sort of showing representation and bringing our full, our fullness and the challenges that we face and the struggles and the policies that have been implemented over the years that cause some strife, bringing right. that to bear each and every day and in the work that we do. Yeah, well, and it was interesting hearing you talk about, you know, the challenge of having a very full agenda and then at the same time having to react and almost ride the wave of, of, of the news of the day, you know, and, and people are constantly looking to your organization for comment on a lot of these news items. I, I've actually had the pleasure of meeting actually with some of your team members. And, and I think what would be interesting is for you to shed some light on, you know, your team and, and, and how you maybe sort through all of the, this big agenda and how do you, you know, gear up in order to also be a really focused reactive machine as well. Yeah. So my team is fearless. Sometimes we say we're the press team for the black white house. We say this <laughs> <laughs> because the, the issues are so immense and they're so unyielding. Yeah. But for, for a group of 10 people who are wickedly smart and talented and here, not just for a job, but, but here for a purpose and a cause. And, and in every day, we try to sort of bring the urgency and bring the seriousness to our work, but we also bring levity. Beca because it is so much, there, there needs to be space for us to think freely. As I say, if we're panicked and if we're you know, in, in trauma all the time, we cannot do our best work. And so that, that means as a team, we have to be really super supportive of each other because nobody else knows what this crucible is like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nobody else knows. And so we, we have, you know, our team oversees social media and that is ongoing and constant. We have a web presence that we've recently just redone and it's like new and exciting. We're doing press relations and answering calls and emails and, you know, and doing digital and email marketing and getting our advocates to take action. And so it, it is all of those, but we have created a beautiful machine. And sometimes I sit back and I watch <laughs> it work and I am so, I'm so proud. I'm so proud. We also have support of agencies that we call on for special projects and, and they are also part of the team. They Do are you have an agency of record or? Several. Or, or, or it's, it's just on projects and yeah it's it's on projects items. we have several that we use for different things but you know when we when we're all together there are more than 20 people but on a day-to-day there there are 10 of us that uh -huh. are kind of at you know at 2 a.m and at 5 yes. a.m we're, we're there yeah, small yeah that, but mighty yes yeah small but mighty exactly what, you know, what communications director hasn't said that small, that's right. <laughs> small but mighty team of two We've all I been know. there. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, voting rights are being challenged today in so many states under the guise of uh, a fight against election fraud. And NAACP President Derek Johnson says it's your number one issue, which actually that's music to my ears because I care about this topic a great deal. What is the NAACP doing in states like Texas, like Georgia, to protect and ensure voting rights? So a couple of things. One, part, part of our strategy has always been litigation. And so there are 
lawsuits that we filed in states. As you know, there are over 400 new voting rights laws restrictions that have been enacted in legislators all across the the country. And so for some of those, we have to fight back with with lawsuits and Mm -hmm. and challenging the um, sort of the premise of some of these laws. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is that we we also have to push Congress to do their job. So right now, as you know, there's some sort of procedural filibuster rule that's keeping Congress from enacting some voting rights protections nationwide, which is really needed. After the four years that we have sort of just come through, and the, I think some, some states view that time period under the previous administration as an opportunity to roll back some protections, mm-hmm. right? They, 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 they felt sort of emboldened and empowered and to, to, to sort of roll back some protections. And so I think now more than ever, there needs to be a national, uh, federal, mm-hmm. uh, and so Congress must do its part. It's interesting because the last, I believe the last reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act happened shortly after George W. Bush came to an NAACP convention, mm-hmm. right? right? And so, right. And so it, it's, not, it's not a partisan issue. Right. It's not a partisan issue at all. It is one that protects the democracy and all of Absolutely. And so I think there's there's a, a part that Congress needs to play. Just two weeks ago, we launched a, um, a scorecard, a congressional scorecard with our partners that showed kind of where each senator was on voting rights protections and filibuster. And some people got A's based on wh- what they've said. Some people got F's and some people got incompletes. <laughs> because there's more work, more work to be done. And so those are just some of the things that we have to do in addition to continuing to call attention to. And yeah, you, you know, just to follow up on that, it, it's interesting to me. So I worked in the U.S. Senate for a Democrat in the 1980s. And it was it, it's fascinating to me to look at a snapshot from that day and then look at today, because for some reason, you know, you talk about bipartisanship. I can remember working on the Martin Luther King holiday and Ophel Dukes mm-hmm. was pulling a lot of us, particularly press secretaries working for Senate Democrats, to rethink the strategy because the Senate the Democrats had lost control to the Republicans and trying to think through how do we make this a truly bipartisan effort? And if you go back and you actually look at the final votes in 1983, you know, overwhelmingly Democrats and Republicans supported the King holiday. And it, it, it just makes me wonder, how do we how do we get in this fix and how do we get out of it? Yeah, that that's that's the million dollar question. Yeah, exactly. I, think, I think there are there are some folks in this country who continue to vote against their interest. We know that. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think the we're, we're now so polarized that people cannot see the benefit, if you will, mm-hmm. of protecting voting rights for everybody. Right. So it, it, it's protecting voting rights doesn't mean just one group gets to vote, protecting voting rights and opening up the, the, uh, the voting process so more people can participate is is the bedrock of the democracy. Right. And so Absolutely. in some ways at, at our core, we've got to grapple with what what it is that we mean by democracy. 
that mm -hmm. we have exported all over the world and we, we are teaching all over the world. We've got to grapple with that, especially from everything we saw over the last four years with the January 6th. We, we, as a country, I think we actually have to grapple with that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's clear. I mean, I, I the that we do have one party today that's not interested in unity and unifying around issues. And it, it serves their best interests to move actually in the opposite direction. And uh, boy, we've got a big challenge because of that. And because of election laws these days and gerrymandering and all of that, there's there's little interest in in unity and sort of I don't collectivism. I don't mean that in the communist sense. I mean it in everyone working together for the betterment of of the country. But there's yeah. so much to talk to you about here, Abba. I don't I don't know where to start, but I'll let me try. I was very interested in your comment about the humanity and displaying the humanity of the people that you advocate for and and not only but in within your organization i can see why you're a good leader and the way you talked about your team but i was intrigued by the campaigns i, I mentioned in your introduction particularly the hashtag word done dying and the virtual march on washington can you give us a little detail on those things i think that'll help people understand what you mean by this constant tension we all feel between proactive and reactive, right? And and so those campaigns sound terrific to me. Yeah, so, so we started 2020 and we were kind of, it was another year, we knew it was an election year. And so mm -hmm. we were sort of laser focused on turning out the vote. Then the pandemic, we, 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 we never had a pandemic before. <laughs> pandemic started and slowly, as we as we say, when you know, when when America catches a cold, Black America gets a flu. It's <laughs> always worse, right? It's right. it's always worse because of policies, because of redlining, because a whole host of things that lack of healthcare that that make the conditions just that much worse. And so, as we were sort of thinking through how how do how are we going to sort of educate our community? How are we going to bounce back from this? Because not only is it a health impact. But there's also an economic impact as you know african americans were bearing the brunt they had to they were part of the gig economy they had to continue to work yes. even while some uh, you know some folks got to sort of work remotely then even in the midst of that we heard about the ahmad arbery case mm -hmm. and we have branches and units all across the country and our georgia state conference said hey we, we've been meeting with this family here's the situation shortly after that we heard of brianna taylor we also heard of the young man in central park who's bird watching somebody called the police on and we said golly <laughs> like so even even in the midst of a pandemic we we, we cannot just be like is that what it is and so Part, part of We Are Done Dying was the, it, it was unapologetic. It was bold. It was, we just need to Terrific. say, like, we're done, we're tired. And, and the, the, the campaign was to, to galvanize and to get people to reach out to their elected officials to one, get data so that we could report on the pandemic, to, to get you know, things like the PPP, to, to make sure that these things were considering our community. Because we know with, if we don't push, it won't happen. Right. It won't happen. And so that was part of the, the We Are Done Dying campaign. And then the, the virtual march was, was similar in that, again, with voting rights. So even with the pandemic and even with everything that was going on, we knew we needed to mobilize people for an election. An election that 
if, if you think back, people needed to vote by mail, they needed to vote early, that we, we needed to educate community about how to go about this. And so those two campaigns, I think, really galvanized our activists Terrific. into just taking a stand and, and calling the people they needed to call and activating in a particular way. And, and you have, you're a membership organization and you have something like 500,000 members. Abba, is that, is that right? So we, we actually have 2 million. We have 2 is million right? followers, oh. <laughs> activists, members. People are in our ecosystem in a number of different ways. And so we count all of them. I'm, um, I'm never good with numbers, Abba, so I apologize. <laughs> so let me ask you about membership. So how do people join? So people go, just go to naacp.org slash membership, I think it is, and, and they can become a member. They can be, so for $30, you can be a member of the NAACP. And you okay. should be a member of the NAACP and everybody should be a member of the NAACP. Again, because the work that we do impacts not just African-Americans, the work that we do supports this democracy. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And well, this is, we're taping this on Giving Tuesday. So in that spirit, maybe folks will, or listening will, will register as members. I, I'm going to go down in a little bit into tactics now, communications tactics. Yes, great. So what's in these campaigns and, and that you describe, which sound terrific, what's, what do you find works best to mobilize members and NAACP members to work on things like voting rights? So there's, there's a big component that is storytelling right? Storytelling to bring awareness. We, we, we always talk about the emotional part, mm -hmm. right? And so there's a cerebral part to the work that we do, right? But, but to get somebody to get up and go to a school board meeting and to, to do the actual day-to-day -day grind mm -hmm. of policy making and policy changing, that's not always sexy. I, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but, and so part of that is putting forth a compelling narrative, a compelling story mm -hmm. that, that drives our emotion. I, I just talked about we're done dying. And when you say that, you, you, you feel something. Uh, totally. Yeah, right, that gets, you, that gets you to move, that gets you to act. And so part of our, our operation is the storytelling. And then there are tools that we use that, you know, we, we, we have come into the today, you know, we are on social media, we're doing all sorts of social campaigns, all sorts of digital campaigns, we're, we're doing texting. And so we, so all of these things in combination, I think, help to mobilize. But, but first and foremost, it's just, it's just that awareness and that, exactly. that storytelling to get people to consider, consider what this means for me, my family, my community. Ah, but kind of switching gears here from tactics to issues. Uh, there have been two recent legal cases that have been followed very closely, particularly by those who care about civil rights issues. The first of those to reach a decision was the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse in the shooting deaths of two protesters at a Black Lives Matter march in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Rittenhouse claimed self-defense. NAACP President Derek Johnson called the jury's verdict dangerous. Please explain what he meant by that comment. So any time you have this sort of action and there's no accountability, it sets a dangerous precedent. And, and, and we have seen this outcome time and time and time again, where the justice system sort of has different outcomes based on race. 
Mm -hmm. right? There's, there's no other way, there's no other way to say that. And so even from the outset, that trial was a prime example of the disparities that he was a, a, arrested, apprehended without incident. He was, he wasn't shot and he wasn't shot, right? People driving in their car, they, they get shot without anything, right? Mm -hmm. He was apprehended, the, his, his own decision to go to Kenosha and pro provoke protesters was unwarranted and dangerous. And, and some might say amounts to domestic terrorism, mm -hmm. right? And so, it, it, and that it's not about the right to bear arms or the right to defend yourself. It's not about any of those things. At the end of the day, it's about the privilege that some people have to take these actions with, without any thought, without any accountability, without any repercussion. And so what does this say to the next person? Right. What does right. that what does that what does that mean? What does that mean for us? And to, you know, he has now been victimized in the media, right? So yeah. people are treating him, but but you compare that to other folks who, you know, were just going to the store to buy candy and, and yeah. we criminalize them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, and it, it almost is a green light for vigilanteism. You know, that's what I worry about as I look at this. You know, in another trial, we have three white men were convicted of the murder of Ahmad Arbery, a young black man who was jogging in a predominantly white neighborhood. You know, President Johnson said of the verdict, the actions and events perpetrated by the defendants leading up to Ahmad's death reflect a growing and deepening rift in America that will be its undoing if not, a, not addressed on a systemic level. We must fix what is genuinely harming our nation, white supremacy. What actions do you think are necessary to more effectively combat white supremacy? Are we ready for this? Because, because, because you know, on, on, some, on some level, it's about ideals that are embedded in the fabric of our history and our systems and our structures. And so what, when we say that, what we're saying is, are we ready to unravel some of this? Are we ready to look at our policies differently? You know, how, how is it that some people are put in jail for possession one drug, now legal, Whereas, you know, when opioids hit one community that is seen as a, as a mental and a, a health kind of epidemic, right? Yeah. So it, it, it is, you know, how is it that some, some, some folks are, you know, going to school and you, you get in trouble and now, now you're in a, in a pipeline, right? And so it is not about people or feelings. It is about policy at the end of the day and, mm -hmm. and about the structures that we have put in place that, that embolden two people or three people to, to, to see a person jogging in the neighborhood and feel like they have the right to question and sort of an on-demand trial and execution of a young person. Right. Mm -hmm. And so where are we as a country and what are the systems that we have put in place that tell somebody that they are entitled to do that, right? And so when we talk about, you know, white supremacy, it is about the policies and the structures that are part of the fabric of, mm -hmm. of Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, Gary and I on the show talk a lot about values, sometimes it's corporate values, but this is the country's values. And you would hope that more people would stand up for 
the institutional elements that you know protect those values that ensure those values that you know many young adults have gone off to battle to support those values this is so thank you for that yeah yeah, yeah. and i you know it's it's hard for some of us who've lived in this country their whole lives to recognize that some of the messages that came out of the white house in the previous administration that sort of were telegraphing this kind of behavior that we saw not sort of that were and and so this is why the election process and the voting rights and everything is so important is to stand up for the values that mike talked about and the and the structure that in the process that you're talking about it's it's we have to do that if we're going to repudiate this kind of sentiment and behavior. Yeah. I'm going to turn now to what we're doing in our own house, meaning the public relations house and the public relations industry, and including work for the Page Society, which I, when I was the chair a few years ago, I, I, I made folks sign a pledge, members sign a pledge to do something about diversity on their own teams. And, and we've made some progress, not as much as we'd hoped. And we're still having a problem in the industry, whether it's in-house or it's in an agency and retaining people of color. We talk a lot about recruitment, mm-hmm. but retention is a problem. So I, I just want to, for the folks who are listening who run teams, Abba, what are some tips? It, you've already talked about the way you treat your team, the way you lead it for engaging and developing diverse talent and, and keeping them on uh, the career path we hope they all follow. So, so I, I would say first and foremost, always sort of value each person, each individual person and their lived experience, right? Like <laughs> that, that's it. So we, 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 we make these things like so complicated and so grandiose, but, but respecting the people on your team, respecting what they bring to the table, respecting their experience and, and, and what brings them to this point. What brings Mm -hmm. them to this point? Valuing that and drawing that out of them in every context. The other, the other thing is that, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to, you know, we, we, we have one particular person on our team and we, we, we want them to answer for everything. Oh, Mm -hmm. what do do black people think about that? You're a black person and you can't do that. Right. It is exhausting. It is exhausting. So hire more, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, and so I, I think I think part part of it is just seeing talent, seeing talent beyond you, sort of your own experience of talent, if I can say right. that. Right. right. And so and so, kind of digging a little deeper and exploring what 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 could be. And so it's not it's not always that people's journeys take them in a particular way. Right. Right. So I you know my. I, I have a degree in computer science and math, and I, I seem to be a, on a you know techie kind of path. But here I am <laughs> in the communications role. Somebody had to take that chance, right? right? Mm-hmm. And and say oh, okay, and somebody did, right? And so we we all have the ability to be mentor to to different types of people. We all have the ability to be mentee. <laughs> mm-hmm right to from different kinds of people and we should we should do that and i think when we do that it it opens our mind and it opens opportunities for different kinds of conversations and that's always uh, that's always needed 
That is so smart. That is so smart. We often sometimes fall back on the pipeline, right? Uh, you know, whether whether there was enough folks in the pipeline, but you're an, a great example of how if we think differently, we can fill that pipeline uh, with terrific people. Now, I, I, there are I wanna- There the folks in the pipeline, tons and tons and tons <laughs> exactly. of Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Now, I want my students to listen very carefully to the following answer. I can't tell you uh, how important it is for black students in my classes at Boston University when they hear from a role model like you. I, I get comments at the end of a semester about guest speakers who come in and how the perspective they provide really changes the students thinking about themselves and their careers and how inspiring it is. And, and so what would you, what advice would you have for a young black person, particularly just beginning a career in public relations. So, so I, I usually get I, I get asked this question a lot, and, and yeah. I always say, bring your full self to every job, every position, every project. Mm -hmm. Right. So you you don't have to leave part of yourself at home. I I am a Trekkie. I am a sports fan. I watch <laughs> all of that comes with me every day. <laughs> Trekkie, right. huh? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed Trekkie, but you go back to the degrees, that maybe. Next generation, maybe. Star Trek. <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and it, right. And so it is, it is important that we, we not sort of cut ourselves off. It is, it is, it is good and it is okay. And it's valued for you to, to come to everything with your full self. The other thing is everything is a learning experience. Yeah. And so some of the things that I did when I first started seemed like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? But then it comes back again <laughs> later in your career, right? <laughs> and so take, take the learning and the layering. Sometimes when I talk to students, you know, I tell them about my journey. I tell them about jobs I applied for and didn't get. I tell them, <laughs> you know, all of these things. And they say, my, you have failed. Have I? Oh, really? And so like, I, I don't see it that way. And so there, I, I think there's a resilience and a toughness that comes with, maybe you apply for a job and you don't get it. It's, it's okay and it's gonna be okay, right? And learn uh, from it, learn from learn, that. Yes, yep. yes, learn, learn from it. Learn from the, the, the jobs you get, the jobs you don't get. Learn, learn from every part of it because it's gonna make you a better leader. It's gonna make you a better professional, I guarantee. <laughs> well, what's, what was your first communications role? Well, so I will tell you this. I was a tour guide at Hood College, and I would say that was actually my first commute. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, I did that. And then, you know, I was also a marketing coordinator for a period of time at, at a university. And, and so I was doing open houses, and I was doing list building, and I was, you know, working on the view book. It was so fun. It was so fun. <laughs> well, and now you get to deal with mega issues, you know, and, and I think one of the issues actually to the students who listen to this podcast would be interested to know is I got an action alert that said NAACP has taken a position on student debt as an element of closing the racial wealth gap. Tell us a bit about why canceling student debt is now an NAACP issue. Yeah, so, so it's, it's interesting. So for years and years, we have told students to, you know, get a college education. That's going to be your, your key to, you know, all of these opportunities. And on one hand, it is. 
but but for many of us, we we take on outsized debt to do that. As we talked about before, sometimes the policies haven't really caught up, mm -hmm. and so we sort of bear a different brunt when we when we yep. take out loans than other people. Yep. And so it is it is important. So so what happens then is that you come out of school, you get a job, the job doesn't pay enough, you still have this debt, mm -hmm. which is then keeping you from getting that starter house. We've made this promise, but people are not actually able to live in that promise because yeah. they have this debt that is then keeping them from other things and, and building wealth and leaving a legacy for their for their children. And so we think we think it's important that we cancel, I think. $10,000 has been canceled for some groups, but we think $50,000 is, is, right, is the right amount that will free people up. It's, a, it's an economic stimulus. When that happens, there'll be Completely. sort of a, an infusion of, you know, purchase and, you know, it, it will get, it's a different economic reality. And so that, that's part of the reason why we, we have taken this on. In now, I got to tell you, I, I, I couldn't imagine how I would have survived if I hadn't had scholarships and work study and loans, you know, and so, so I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's like, you know, starting a race, but you're, you're told to take the blocks, you know, <laughs> 10 meters back. Yeah, exactly. I was talking to a student recently with $100,000 oh. in student debt. I, I just can't imagine having that anchor on me as I was starting my career. It would it influence every decision yeah. I would make about my professional and personal life. And I love this idea, this concept, Abba, that it is economic stimulus because it clearly would be. So, so listen, I said we, there's so many things we could talk to you about. We could go on forever, but you have work to do. So I just want to thank you for, for joining us on The Crux. Our guest has been Abba Blankson, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for the NAACP. Abba, thank you for being on The Crux. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.